Hello out there in TV land. I'm going to be interviewing Carrie Wendell and John Tilly, who just told stories here on True Tales Live, which I hope you've heard. And Carrie has been in the area for a long time. He started out in Pennsylvania, but came to the seacoast in when, Carrie? 81, late 81 is when I moved up. Okay. 81. So I've known Carrie throughout all this. Gee, that's a lot of years now, because I moved in, uh, to this area pretty much around that time, too. On the other hand, we have John Tilly. Where did you come from, John? Well, I came from Texas, born and raised, and uh, we moved to Rye at the end of 2014, just in time for the great winter. So I've been here about two and a half years. And what was your incentive to come east? A, a wife of 32 years, uh, had lived in Portsmouth back in the early 70s, um, and she says that this is an exaggeration, but this is how I remember it. When she and I first met in Houston in 1978, she said, hi, my name is Wanda, and someday I'm moving back to New England. And I said, okay. <laughs> that sounded like a pretty enchanting idea. I didn't know anything about New England, but if she wanted to go there, I would go with her. And um, I happen to know that John's first winter was 215, correct? Yes. And so that was the... Yes. There was lots of shoveling of roofs and driveways and, and brutal hardship. It was great. I, I had never heard of a roof rake until that winter. <laughs> And now I own one. <laughs> <laughs> Darn right, not going to borrow mine. <laughs> um, so both of you told some really good stories. And I guess you both wrote them out before telling them too. How long ago did you um, experience the, the trip to so Dominica? Yeah. Um, that, was, that was March of 2003. It just happened to be also when we were invading Iraq. And my hosts were quite upset by that and happy to be expatriates at that point. Oh, so they moved there like to live. Yeah, yeah. Actually, they, they settled there. I don't think they intended to move there necessarily. They just wanted to leave Portsmouth. They had been working very hard at the restaurant. And right needed a break and they just traveled around and then an opportunity came up for them I think and they were involved in a sort of cyber cafe opportunity they were actually taking over management of something that already existed well that's a pretty traumatic introduction to their new life um, having <laughs> one of their good friends believed to be drowned that's pretty pretty spooky well you know everybody gets their moment of fame and how, <laughs> or in fame. In fame, yes. <laughs> and how about you, John? How long have you been mulling over that story or working on it? Well, as you can probably imagine, I suppressed those two stories for, <laughs> for as long as I could, and I don't know how they came bubbling back up to the surface, but... Uh, uh, there were lessons in both of those, and so I thought that was worth writing down. Did you um, try them out for your family at all? Well, I, I wrote the story, and then I gave it to my wife, Wanda, and our daughter, Caitlin, to read at the same time. And they had something of different reactions. 
my wife read it and looked at me and said, you know, it's probably just as well that we didn't meet till 10 years later. <laughs> and uh, my daughter, who is her father's biggest defender, read the story and frowned and said, I'll bet that cheerleader got fat. <laughs> oh, gracious. <laughs> uh, so, how did you both come to an interest in telling or, and writing stories? Uh, how about source level? Has it, um, I think, John, you said when you were a kid you had some uh, grandparents or. Yeah, my, my father's parents lived uh, on a on a 40-acre farm in central Texas, and uh, I spent a lot of time uh, there in my in my childhood. And uh, my grandmother loved to talk about her family history or growing up and whatnot. And she she would call it looking back. I like to look back, and to her that was remembering and telling telling family stories. Many of those stories were on the front porch of that farmhouse as she was shelling black-eyed peas that she had picked from her garden. Sounds really southern, but I guess Texan. 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 How about you, Carrie? Um, storytelling? How did yeah, I start? Yeah, the storytelling part. Um, well, let's see. I guess one of, the, one of the first stories that I actually told in public was back at the Button Factory when Seacoast Repertory Theater was still there. And I told a family story about a cookie tree on an island in Maine. It was a family tradition that went back four generations. So um, there might be 10 or 15 relatives that would get on a, on a mail boat and get dropped off on Kimball's Island near Idaho, um, up in Penobscot Bay. And the, a few adults would go ahead of the kids. And the adults would go and put sugar cookies on, uh, on an evergreen tree and when the kids came there, they could go pick the sugar cookies off of the tree. So that that was I was probably five when that first happened. Um, were Were you one of the children? I was one of the five year old. I was five when I first picked first picked my cookies. Oh, that's 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 pretty magical. But then I helped other uh, you know another generation experience it too. That was one of the first hoots. I remember that too. I mean, there was so much going on with. The button factory. Yeah. Did you have a an art studio there too, or a paint? Yeah, I was. Um, well, the mural. It's it's a bit of a convoluted story, but with the when the Alec Gallery started in '83, um, an offshoot of that was a mural company. Um, when a building partially collapsed in downtown Portsmouth, the Foy and the Pierce buildings, um, right in Market Square. And it got boarded up uh, with plywood, 52 sheets of plywood, and that was close to the Athenaeum, right? Yeah, yeah, right okay. next to the Athenaeum. Yeah. And so, some members of the Alley Gallery, um, Pat Splain, put together a uh, proposal to the City Council to do a, a mural of how the building looked in about the year nine, 1905 or something. So we did some research and came up with a very realistic depiction of the building, four stories high, all the windows, all the bricks, all the mortar, all the panes got painted for a whole summer. And we did it for free, but we got a lot of publicity. And then it. that grew into mural works. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. It was quite a feature. Um, yeah. Yeah. How long did it last? Um, um, it was up 
for over a year, I think. Um, we actually got paid to, um, to take it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, that sounds like the current environment. Okay, um, we're not going to talk about that. Um. <laughs> but just to follow up on that, it, it, it became a, it was, it was a centerfold in Yankee Magazine with a nice colored photo, and then that started our business. Um, and we started getting calls from all over New England. Great. Yep. So it does pay to volunteer to do yeah, we called it our $10,000 business card. That's why we did. That's about a, a, the amount that you invested in doing it for yeah, free. Yeah. Um, John, can you give an example of how storytelling served your career as a lawyer? John was a lawyer for most of his working career, or all of it? Or? Well, I, um, you know, in, in my story, I mentioned giving up a chemical engineering degree uh, to go to the Department of English, which I'll have to tell you did not thrill my father all that much, not thinking that there might not be much of a living with an English degree. So well, I, him, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I found something more practical, and that's when I went into the to journalism, and that's what my actual degree was. And I worked on the college newspaper very diligently, and wrote stories and edited stories and whatnot. So that was always important to me as well. Um, after I got out of law school and started being uh, an, an attorney, I learned that the story wasn't mine anymore, that the story in the courtroom had to be the client's story. And my job was simply to help mold that story and progress that story and tell it in a way that was coherent and hopefully interesting enough to keep 12 jurors uh, awake and interested and hopefully persuaded to our side. So it's a little bit like directing a play in a way. I mean, there must be similarities because you're um, maybe even writing one. I mean, getting the characters and the deciding, okay, this, this person should have this much time, but then we're going to bring somebody else forward because that's okay, and we don't want to bring this. I, I, you I've guys never, have something in common then. Yeah, way. I've never directed a play, but I think yes, that you illustration... Yes, you didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think, at least in a play, the characters are there and they want to be there. In a trial, many of your witnesses <laughs> really don't want to be there. Oh, yeah, but that probably adds to the drama. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so... Carrie, you talked a little bit about your, um, your, your painting and your artistic visual art side. And now you've been working since 98, you said, at Phillips at Exeter Academy as a designer technician, mostly on theater productions so and teaching? Yeah. Um, I, I started actually doing theater designing and building and painting back in the 70s before I moved up here. Um, that was through the Cambridge Adult Education Center, where I, I first got my exposure to, to theaters um, and the play that Peggy got, my wife was was uh, cast in, and then I ended up being part of. So they they found that I had carpentry skills and painting skills, and they said, "Okay, we can use you in the cast." <laughs> but um, so then, with generic theater, when we started that in '82, um, I became the sort of de facto designer and to sort of develop that skill. Eventually, I went back and got a degree in, in uh, a master's in fine arts in, in uh, theater design in So Ohio. you've been just developing one skill after another? 
They're, they all relate to each other. That's, yeah, they that's do. That's a nice thing. And, and that's a lovely thing about theater is that a lot of people have to share their imagination and, and work, work copacetically with each other. Now, both of you have careers that, to me, seem like there's quite a bit of tension. You've got deadlines. You've got, uh, and the same with the um, being a lawyer. Things have to come in a certain time and all that. So how do you calm down? <laughs> do you have any techniques of maintaining balance for the folks out there? <laughs> Well. <laughs> John's trying to think of one. <laughs> as calm as he looks. <laughs> well, I now that I am thankfully retired, uh, I have plenty of time to go on long walks, which is what I enjoy the most. Uh, and then I enjoy reading. So if things get stressful or whatnot, then I just try to go bury myself in a good novel. How about you, Carrie? For me, painting was was always my go-to for relaxation. Um, I like painting in the landscape. I like plein air painting. I did that in high school, and then I've always loved that. I find it very meditative. Um, when I traveled in Europe, I did a lot of painting, um, and it's a way of just sort of bonding with the landscape. And you said something about Tai Chi, too, kind of recently. Yeah, and that's later on. Um, I, I, I've been doing Tai Chi now for 12 years. I've been teaching Tai Chi for eight years in, in Exeter, sort of under the auspices of the Taoist Tai Chi Society. It's an international organization. Um, and we have about 60 or 70 members um, that go to Exeter um, to, to learn Tai Chi. And yeah, I tried that a few times, but I had to slow myself down too much. <laughs> well, my, my doctor um, recognized that I had arthritis, and I was, it, was, it was getting more and more serious. And she said, you can do either yoga or tai chi. And to me, yoga was a little too static or boring, although actually I used some yoga just to be able to get out of bed in the morning. But tai chi was more performance-oriented. Oh, yeah, so oh, it, yeah, it's both meditative and, and performance. Well, yeah. we're um, finishing things up now. Can you show us some, <laughs> <laughs> some calming moves? <laughs> well, let's see. There, there is Tai Chi that's, that can be done in the chair. Right. So, I mean, one thing would be a, a cloud hand. That's so pretty. When? <laughs> So that's oh, the audience is joining with the cloud <laughs> hand, and um, soon we can give the cloud hand to our listeners <laughs> out there. The cloud hand. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in this conversation with Carrie Wendell and John Tilly. <laughs>